Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not, not to your own interests, but to the interests of the others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thanks, Jared. That was Philippians chapter 2, a great passage and one of the earliest articulations of the Christian faith, the way. It was a poem. We call it the Kenosis Passage. If you're a theologian or a seminary student, nobody else really calls it that. We call it Philippians 2, but in it, that kenosis passage is a word that means he emptied himself. And it's so cool that that was one of the earliest ideas and examples that these Christians had of what it meant to look like and follow Jesus. And so tonight in Ephesians, which is all about life in Christ, we begin with that picture of Jesus who had it all, who was exactly equal in every way standing as God, but he did not regard that equality something to be exploited. So tonight in Ephesians, as we look at that Jesus and that life in him, we see that it takes place to look like him, to serve like him, to empty himself like him, even in closest proximity within our family. Ephesians, it's all about life in Christ. We've soared the big high highs on the ski lift, looking at the mountains, and we've even gone to the ground level. So now what? How do you walk and live in Jesus? And now Paul brings it down to closest proximity, even with our family. So I had intended to preach just the marriage portion, the husbands and wives portion, a few weeks ago. And tonight, I intended at first to just mash them all together because I had lost my voice, and so that became a prayer service. Although Amy reminded me that I talked just as much with my half voice than I would have if I had just preached it anyway. But truth be told, this is a very difficult text, so I wasn't just super jazzed to preach it to begin with. Until the more I looked at it, the more I spent time with it, the more I let that picture of Jesus, the servant, emptying himself and valuing others over himself, began to take root. I began to see we should not fear this text because the life in Christ can be lived in closest proximity. Wives, husbands, children, parents, even slaves and masters within their culture, within our culture, because we're all called to follow Jesus who made himself nothing. But tonight, I don't think we're going to have time to get to the last half, so we may just land with husbands and wives tonight because it's been a text that's been so thorny and difficult. So let me read our passage in Ephesians and see that life in Christ played out. And it starts with a word that we really bristle at, and that word is submit. 
That's what we're going to talk mostly about tonight. But let's read our passage once through, and then we'll circle back around and at least look at wives and husbands. You with me? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that, you may, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word in the scriptures. It's a testament to your relationship to us, humanity. It's a testament to humanity's relationship to you. And so, Lord, would you guide us, and would you point us, to the Word who became flesh, Jesus, who is the perfect revelation. We pray that these would be words that inspire us to live that life in Him, even if it goes against the grain of our culture, and especially the culture of their day. So please bless us and keep us as you inhabit the praise of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I was saying earlier, the climax to this whole spirit-filled life in Christ, all this big picture, beautiful life in Christ, comes to a crashing halt and the emergency brake is pulled when he gets down to 521 and you hit that word submit. It's so hard. It's the climax. Submit to who? 
to each other. Well, who's each other? Each other is the church in whom Christ dwells. The church in whom this whole letter is written to. To remind that we are in Christ. Christ is our head. We are his body. Christ fills all. And like we saw in Ephesians 1, he has filled us with every spiritual blessing in him. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So we see this word submit that we're about to get to. Who do we submit to? One another. Why should we do something as crazy as that? Well, he says, out of reverence for Christ. Christ is the example for all. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of Christ. That's the only time that phrase fear of Christ is mentioned in the New Testament, which is weird because we're not supposed to be afraid of Christ, especially if you've seen that show, The Bible. He's not so scary. He's got a robe and some sandals and a nice little beard like myself, which is why I grew a beard and get the free permission from my wife to grow a beard. He's not so scary. But we have this phrase, you're supposed to do this dirty word submit that we're looking at tonight. You're supposed to submit to one another. Why? Because fear of Christ. Well, this word right at the gate we need to talk about also is fear. And that is an idea or a recognition or an awe. Like you've heard that word fear in the Old Testament. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. We fear Christ and we recognize Him as Lord of all. And we submit to one another when we recognize Christ as Lord of all and watch. We recognize Christ as one who Himself submitted. The reason we read Philippians 2 is because we follow a Savior who submitted Himself to the Father's will. He submitted Himself, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God, something to be held onto or exploited. What did He do? He made Himself nothing. He submitted Himself to becoming one of us. He submitted Himself in humility to touch sinners, to welcome outcasts. He submitted to the Father, but what else does Philippians 2 said that we read? The Father then raised him and sat him and honored him at his right hand. And so we follow a Savior. And before we even talk about that word submit, I want to say that the reason through this whole passage and why I read this whole passage that we could even begin to unpack a scary word like submit is because Christ is the one who has shown us a life of submission and humility and service. And we can submit to Him first. And it is only because we, of Him that when we submit, watch, we won't fear being doormats. Because if we submit to one another who are also submitting to Christ, hear me, if God is with us and if the Spirit is leading us, even in our closest relationships we're about to see in wives and husbands, if we recognize reverently that Christ is Lord, why would we then turn around and lord it over those who are submitting to us? The key passage that we must hold before us, before we look at wives, before we look at husbands, before we look at children next week, before we look at parents, before we look at slaves and masters, the heading and connecting point to all the life in Christ is submit to one another out of Christ. We submit to Christ, and it's only by submitting to Him 
that we have the grace and power to allow ourselves to submit to others. The first example of this then comes in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. There, we read it. We're okay, right? Wives, raise your hand if you're married. Are we still living and breathing? Are we okay? Can you not elbow your husband? We'll get to him. But before we talk about wives in this business of submitting to one another, we're still remembering the call, the heading is submit to what? One another, right? So how does that work in these relationships of closest proximity? I want to tell you real quickly, this whole business of wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, Paul did not invent, okay? Paul did not invent it. Paul was a new guy on the scene from Judaism, right? He became a Christian, he followed Jesus, and he became the apostle or ambassador for the Jesus way, and the Jesus way began sweeping its ray through what empire? The Roman Empire, yes? Well, in the Roman Empire, from perhaps 400 years before Ephesians was written by Paul to a group of people in Asia Minor ruled by the Romans... 400 years before Paul wrote, a guy named Aristotle wrote, and he wrote a book called Politics, and it was a philosophy on how uh, bodies or nations should politic themselves. Is that a word? Does that make sense? No? Well, I don't know about much about it, but I do know this. Here's what he said. He believed in many of his philosophers in his day in the Roman Empire, if Rome was going to be strong, the families needed to be strong. Does this sound similar to another empire of our day? Right, if America is going to be strong, our families need to be strong. Amen? I'm saying that in a goofy voice, but it is true, right? But more than that, Paul understood this. If the kingdom of God is going to be strong, families need to be strong in Christ. So he's taking what Aristotle started for the empire of Rome by this formula where he says the primary and smallest parts of the household are what? Master and slave, husband and wife father and children. He says we ought to look at them and work out a life for them if our great Rome is going to be strong. So several people after Aristotle had come up with these what's been known later in uh, theology and history studies. They've become known as household codes. So Paul undertakes to say if I want to make the kingdom of God strong we need to make the family strong. And so he's going to do his stab at a household code with these people that Aristotle excuse me Aristotle mentioned in his work. Paul undertakes for his work. So I told you about this new way where Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not in the Roman Empire sweeping through the first century. Rome thought this. They were a strong empire with strong husband roles, strong wifely roles, strong slave and master roles, strong children and parent roles. They thought Christians were ruining their society. You look at any literature about this passage of scripture and you're going to see Roman people in the first century calling out the Christians for talking way too much about love and forgiveness. You see them talking way too much about trying to say we're all welcome at the table. You see them getting bent out of shape because the Christian life were meeting in homes when they worshiped. 
And they were meeting in homes, gathered around a table, and they raised a cup to King Jesus. And who was sitting around the table? It wasn't the Roman elite. It wasn't the household code that said, slaves go sit over here. It was a new order, a new family that God had created, and their household code that Rome was so bent out of shape about was because the slave was all of a sudden sitting here. And all of a sudden, they were sitting next to a merchant who is wealthy. And then that person was sitting next to a woman. And then perhaps even the woman would stand up and God help us prophesy in the name of Jesus. Oh Lord, could that slave rub elbows with a freed person? Because what happens when the freed person starts talking about his life? Well, that's going to destroy our culture. What can we do if the wife starts to think she can speak in our gatherings? That's going to destroy our culture. Well, Paul writes these household codes, and he does it from a context that we've got to talk about. We've got a name because everyone who's going to talk about household codes has to point out the fact that Paul didn't invent them. He's going to write from a place to show this culture that no, Christianity is not going to destroy the empire. But yes, Christianity is going to subvert the empire. You see, here's the thing before we get into the nitty gritty. Paul is going to replace culturally defined roles in their culture, in their context, in their homes. He's going to replace culturally defined roles with, watch, Christ-defined roles. What does it mean to be in Christ and in a culture? What does it mean to be in Christ and a husband when husbands are expected to dominate and rule over their wives and their households? What does it look like to be a husband whose only expectation in the Roman household was to provide basic food and shelter and basically be a manager and a provider for all the people that live in your house now that you're in Christ? What does it look like to be a wife who are thought of as inferior, morally, intellectually, status-wise? What does it look like to be a wife and woman in Christ? And what does it look like to replace culturally defined roles with Christ-defined roles when the culture is threatening your very life? Well, Paul, first of all, sets verse 21 and says, Submit to one another because Christ is Lord, not Caesar. And then he's going to play the game and fill in the household codes, but each step of the way, while it may sound strange to our ears, he's working within their cultural context and replacing culture-defined roles with Christ-defined roles. You know how I know that? The words that we read in this whole passage, if you heard on repeat, you heard the phrase, as to the Lord, nine times. Hey, submit, obey, love as to the Lord, as to the Lord, as to the Lord. Why do it? Your culture? No, Christ. You also heard in the Lord two times. The through line through this whole thing, submit, yes, but do so out of reverence for Christ. I know I'm spending a lot of time on what feels like an introduction, But we are going to get to every one of these verses, but I want to say a few more words by way of just building my case for this nasty word, submit, and how Christ redefines our roles, okay? 
Here's my three confessions and one reminder. They're on the screen, okay? We need to understand that the Bible was written in patriarchal cultures. Patriarch means there is a male at the head as a dominant leader person. Patriarchal culture means it's a man's world, sweetie. And they call people sweetie, right? Yes? The Bible was written in a patriarchal culture. That's just what it is. Because patriarchal cultures have existed across continents, across generations for so long. We need to confess that and own that. The Bible, like I said earlier, is a record of humanity to God and God to humanity. And it's written within a culture. So we just need to confess that. Whether it's explicit in the text, it's implicit because that's where this thing was built up. Now the second confession is this. Submission is a Christian word that the writers of the New Testament just kept using. Even if we bristle at that word within our culture. I wish I could invent another word, but they just kept using it. Why? Because reverence for Christ. Because Christ himself submitted. And we can submit to him. And that empowers us to submit to others. Submit is a Christian word. It's a New Testament word. And it was modeled by Jesus. Third confession. And this one I think is important. And why I'm spending so much time by way of introduction and background. It's this. Many women and wives have been hurt by the misuse of this passage. Let me tell you what this passage is not doing. Not doing when I read verse 22. Wives submit to your own husbands. It is not suggesting that wives be docile doormats. That what I say goes, wife, and you must submit to me. Forget this reverence for Christ business. I am the man. And if that sounds ridiculous, it ought to. But sadly, it's what's been shared and said using these words. Many people have been abused by the misuse of this text. And as much as I want to demand that my wife gets up here and preaches and submit to me, Amy, listen, I want to demand that you get up here and do this and preach this text. It's just not going to happen. Because it's a misuse to say that women should be doormats because watch, the first thing we need to know about that word submit is this. It is not equal obedience. Submission does not equal obedience. And whether you're reading conservative guys or so-called liberal guys, they're all going to say this word submit does not carry with it a obedience so when we are misusing this passage, suggesting that they should be doormats, uh, it's not that they should simply obey. Which means, watch, it's not that men should automatically wield absolute power in our marriages. Is that the basis of a healthy marriage? No. What is? Christ at the center. Submit to one another out of reverence for Him. Those are the three confessions that we've got to put on the table. And remember that He's going to replace those culturally defined roles with a Christ-defined role, which leads me to my reminder. And my reminder is this. Let's look at it. I think it's on the screen. Jesus revolutionizes our relationships and our cultural expectations. 
If it's not the household codes that Rome was afraid of that's going to destroy their empire, you know what would be? A man who is a peasant, homeless fisherman who walked through northern Galilee telling people that they should love their enemies. You know what would really mess with a culture? Turning the other cheek. You know what would really mess with his religious culture that he grew up in and obeyed and followed? Touching sinners and unclean people. Women caught in adultery, men with leprosy, women who have been afflicted by demons, women afflicted by bleeding, Jesus reaching out and touching them. You know what destroys a culture? Revolutionizing relationships to the tune of seeing no longer us and them, but all welcome to come because the kingdom is available even to you. Jesus revolutionizes our relationships. And so with all of that said, remembering that Jesus is the through line for this whole passage, let's go back again and look at submission and these culturally defined roles that have become Christ-defined. You still with me? Whew! I want to tell you also, if you're still with me in this pretty heady sermon I want to tell you there's not going to be a lot of practical marriage advice to spare tonight, okay? There's not a lot of fun Adam stories tonight, okay? Can I promise you that we think next year we're going to do a marriage retreat and perhaps a series on family and marriage, and we can talk some practical fun stories then? Tonight we're going to talk about just as serious good business of how Jesus revolutionizes our relationships with husbands and wives. You with me still? Let's do it. Verse 22, wives, whoops, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. That's so huge there. As you do the Lord. Why should they even submit again? Why should we submit to one another reverence for Christ? Why should they then submit to their husbands as to the Lord? Look at this. In verse 22, you know what word doesn't appear there? The word submit. You know what Paul's doing? Borrowing the word submit from verse 21. It's as if he continues his thought, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then gives the first example of what that looks like. And he happens to use wives with their husbands. Should wives submit to their husbands? Yes. Should we submit to one another? Yes. Should husbands, short answer, submit to their wives? Yes. Why? Because verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that first example is from the wives who are considered morally inferior, uneducated, unclean, and universally subservient because they thought it was just in their nature. The culturally defined expectation to submit in these Roman household codes came from, watch, an expectation of inferiority. But Christ has redefined and says, be subject to or submit to the husband from an example of the submission to Christ as to the Lord. So yes, they should submit just like we all should submit. What is submission then? Well, I don't have such a great and short definition, but we could at least say we see one specific example that Paul gives in verse 33. That's just simply for the wives. The wife must respect her husband. 
But if Christ is our example, if he's our through line, it's a respecting or deferring to others from an attitude of watch, humility, service, and sacrificial love. And we do this through his power. And we do this even in verse 23 when that submission is put into a context of a very tough verse that many people are confused about and myself is confused about too. And he says this, For the husband is the head of the wife as what? Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now the husbands are not saviors to the wives. That much is true about their relating to Christ. But you know what? He draws a parallel and says this. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now there's been a lot of confusion about that word head. And I'm confused by it too because many other scholars are. But what we see here and almost universally we say is it doesn't mean boss. What the head seems to imply is this idea that there is a responsibility for this person. There's a responsibility that's placed on the husband. But again, it's not because the wives are supposed to be subservient. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And he says in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Well, wait a minute. If head of the wife isn't hard enough, What does it mean then to submit in everything? Well, if the church submits to Christ in everything, and it is all spheres of our lives, the wife should submit in everything. This is tough stuff. But we submit to Christ and we're able to submit to one another. And where Paul takes that is not that it's just, he doesn't just leave it for the wives. We may expect next in the husband passage where him to say, husbands, because your wives are subservient now, you must rule over them. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? Husbands, love. Now we can, as modern people, give Paul kind of some gruff because why didn't he use the same word? Why didn't he use that word submit like he did for the wives? I think because the Bible, like we confessed earlier, is a cultural book and he's trying to be smart in a culture that saw Christianity as a threat for undoing their empire. But I will say this, husbands have the same exhortation in verse 21 as the wives to submit to one another. So certainly the one another includes their wife. And he says, husbands, love your wives. How? What should the head of the wife look like? If she's going to submit to this guy, how should he love and submit to her? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. There is a care and an attention and a love and watch sacrifice implied in the husband's role here. It goes so far beyond the Roman expectation to just give them roof and a meal. Shelters do that. Husbands are called to love so radically, so sacrificially, in such a way that, watch, he becomes her servant too. 
Husbands, love your wives. And he makes this beautiful analogy. Just as Christ loved his bride, the church. And what did he do? He made her holy. He cleansed her by the washing of water through the word. Christ set apart the church and said, she's mine. Just like husbands got down on one knee and said, will you marry me? And set this woman apart to love and cherish and care for and no other person. And so then, this washing of the water, he has made her clean. Did the husband do that? No. Did Christ do that? Yes. And what they've done then, and the analogy he's using, is when women were thought of as unclean, when women were thought as less than, he has in some way claimed her. And the husband should model that same kind of image as Jesus has done. He goes further and says, love her in such a radical way where you become her servant too because Christ has called you to submit, to sacrifice, to love and humility and the culturally defined expectation to simply rule over a doormat will not stand because Christ has defined our expectation and he says even further, love your wife as yourself. You see that in verse 28? He abandons for just a moment the analogy of Christ in the church, but he's still leaving Christ as the example. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is the greatest commandment, people. Love your neighbor as yourself. After all, in verse 29, as if we needed more, no one has ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. So Christ feeds and cares for. The husband should feed and care for. And then he says in Genesis, he quotes one, the very first marriage. For we are members of his body. Then he quotes the first marriage in Genesis, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There is an intimate, sexual, emotional, all these ways we're united. And it's this mystery that God has brought physically to one another. So you should love your wife, men, as your own body. Because she is your body. You should treat her with such care and such sacrifice, just as Christ did. The two will become one flesh. Paul quotes it, but then in verse 32, watch what he does. This is a profound mystery. Ah, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm snapping your attention back to Christ and his example. Through all of this cultural talk, I'm weaving a Christ who has sacrificed and cared for and brought the church wholly to himself. So he summarizes this section. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. What are the particulars of the submission? What is a one practical thing? It's only that word respect. But should husbands respect their wives also? Yes, because he asked them to love them, care for them, cherish them. The husbands are the second example of that mutual submission we found in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Defer to one another. Respect one another. Come and value their needs above your own, like we read in Philippians 2. And you will honor Christ, and you will find that life in Him within 
our culture. Husbands, before we kind of move aside from that text there, do you care for her needs, as Paul has said, as much as you do for your own? Because so many times in our culture, we see men and husbands who persist in bachelorhood and live just like those Roman men, maybe not lording over them, but simply just providing a roof and food because you're living in this culturally defined role of I'm the provider and sometimes I just need to come home and you know what? She needs to please me and she needs to take care of this and feed this and feed that. And we need to remember that Paul who has called us to submit to one another, spends a lot more time dealing with the husband and how he's to love his wife than he does the wife who's told to submit. I think that when we submit to one another and we live in such a way where we're valuing an other over ourselves to care about her needs over ourselves, we're modeling that submission even if it's not named for the husbands in this text. I want to give you a couple case studies as we close from my own marriage. And I sat under marriage counseling, Amy and I did, that was from a very traditional way of understanding this text that assumed submission simply means the buck starts and stops with the husband. And it was told to us that she could make a million little decisions about what color the walls are, what kind of couch we got, what we could have for dinner. But Adam, when it came down to the big leadership questions, you get the only say. This is what was told to us. And so we entered into a marriage where that never really felt like the way of Christ. It never really felt like simply because I'm the man and she's the woman. I didn't see in places like Galatians 3 where it says there's no all the distinctions, the dividing lines. There's no longer male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. All are one in Christ. It didn't seem right to me that a healthy marriage should simply be built on this expectation that the buck starts and stops with me. What does it mean then to submit one to another? So we entered into our marriage, and we had an instance in which we come down to finances. And here's my first little case study built on trying to sort out what does it mean to submit one to another in a marriage in a Christ-defined way. And so we come down to finances, and I was the spender, and she was the savior, the savior, whoops, the saver. (laughs) Whoa, dude, that's a Freudian slip. She saved me. She saved my life, at least. I was the spender and she was the saver. And we had to sort out where she was paying the bills and I was spending over the bills and it was causing her great stress and um, I wasn't making great decisions. And we came to this place where I was leaving the country and I left her with like 27 cents. Not really, but I mean, it felt like that. And I just didn't really care for her. And so it came to this point where we sought the Lord and we said, you know, um, I am not honoring you. And this way of kind of the buck starting and stopping and just letting me handle all this, this is not really working, is it? I'm not caring for your needs. I'm just doing my thing. You're doing yours. And we need to sort this out and seek the Lord 
and seek others who are giving us counsel in this. And so this is a big marital discussion, finances, and we were doing this as young marrieds. And we had to come to a place where the roles changed because we were speaking honestly about one another. And we, I had to defer and submit to my wife because there are places that I'm wrong. And I had to step out of this instance that just because I'm the man and the husband, I can't just tell her what she should do and go fix it. And so we were formed in the process because we found ourselves in this place where we need to make these decisions together and work through these things together. And just because she's told to submit in this plain text, perhaps it doesn't mean that she just needs to come hook, line, and sinker with everything I say because someone read this text and told me that that's how it ought to be. It wasn't just the wife that was abused. It was me that was abused because I was an unformed servant to my wife. And so the first case study in that difficult part of finances, I'll hit the other big one. It's parenting. When we were pregnant with Emma, we had started to talk about, you know, what is it going to look like when we become parents for the first time? When Emma was here and she was an infant, we began to have the conversation about discipline because we wanted to discipline an infant, but you cannot discipline infants. That's called child abuse and you'll be arrested. That's a dud of a joke, okay? I've been talking too long, and it's one of those nights, okay? I'm almost done. This is our issue of parenting. We're talking about discipline when we have Emma here. And so I'm operating under this assumption, this traditional way that, you know, what I say goes, she gets all the little, you know, ways of uh, deciding, but I need to make the ultimate decision, right? So what happens is I have a wife who has a degree in child development and family studies. She has worked her entire life, even since she was a little baby, a uh, child, not even a little baby. What am I talking about? Uh, she's worked since she was a teenager as a babysitter. She's worked in preschools and daycares, and she has been around kids and experienced all her life. And I'm sitting here lording over her what should be done because, by golly, you know what? I'm the husband and I'm the leader in the home, right? And so then all of a sudden, I say this. Let's go seek the Lord. Let's search the scriptures. Let's sort, uh, seek wise counsel. And let's talk honestly to one another. And we both were formed in this process. And we came to see that my way doesn't go. And I, guess what, had to submit to my wife. Because she had searched the scriptures, sought the Lord. He had brought us to a consensus through the Holy Spirit. And I submitted to my wife. And I submit to her every day, God help me if I can. And she ought to submit to me as to Christ. In reverence of Christ. Because the Christ-defined marriage is one that's based on mutual submission. Neither controls the other. Each values the other over self. Each looks out for the other's needs. The wife submits to Christ and her husband. The husband submits to Christ and his wife and loves his wife in such a radical way. And I'll close with this. Dallas Willard said, and we've said it a lot in this church, to follow Jesus is to choose to do what Jesus would do if he were in our shoes. Why should I choose to do what Jesus would do if he was in my shoes? He's never been married. Well, I've submitted to Christ in all spheres of my life, including my relationships. And so we must submit to Christ, defer to him, 
humble ourselves to him who submitted himself so that we can submit to one another by his power and for his example. Let's pray. Lord, it's one of those nights, because I think it's been one of those days where I'm just kind of feeling all over the map. And so, Lord, I just pray that um, a relentless and beautiful picture of Christ who came and surprised us all to show us what a king looked like. I pray that his picture and example would be a clear picture in our hearts because it's so clear to me in this text. So I pray that whatever branch that's not bearing good fruit and pointing to that picture of Christ who submitted himself and calls us to submit to one another, I pray that those words and branches that are not bearing that fruit would be just cut off. I pray that your word would be on our hearts because it's profitable and good and living and active and dynamic. I pray that it would affect us as a surgeon, not a slayer, piercing and jabbing and hurting us. I pray that the fear of Christ would not be something that's terrifying, but it would be an awe at the one who gave it all up and emptied himself so that we might be filled with life and love and good things. So Lord, we commit this time to you as we respond. We commit this time to you to repent in the ways that we've not modeled and mirrored the servant Jesus we commit this time to you to come to the table and remember that it was your body broken for us and your blood shed for us that has enabled us to live in a new household and that is the household of God who we can call Abba. So I pray that you would bless us and keep us and that we would continue to search that we might find Jesus in these words and the Spirit in our midst, calling us to love and care for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we conclude our time of worship singing, and as we do each week, coming to the table, remembering that we do so together. It's called communion, not just because it's for our community. It's for all of those who are in the community of Christ. We remember that his blood was for all, his body was for all. And so we come, we repent, and we ask that we would take Jesus into our bodies, that we could take him out into our families and our world. So we invite you to come. you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as the Lord abounds in love for us. <clears throat> and may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go in peace.